on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk radio show about opera. It is Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. It's just me this week, the OBS crew, on that much-needed fortnight off. We have really great things in store on the show for you in 2022. Episode 300, depending on when you're counting, is potentially right now. I think we're going to celebrate that in the new year with the whole team. Some great guests lined up for 2022. Some crossover shows, stuff you do not want to miss. But first, this week... It is part two of our favorite things, looking back at 2021 and our favorite episodes, including Barbara Hannigan, Will Liverman, and that contentious Euro 2020 bracket. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. All you do is drop us a line, and then you get an OBS beer coaster, and you get an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot take. A little bit of sports before we get going. We've talked about it before on the show, but depending on what happens on New Year's Eve, if Alabama wins and if Michigan wins, they are on a collision course to meet in the national championship. I hope I'm not putting the cart before the horse here. As a huge Wolverine fan, nothing would give me greater pleasure than to make it and win the national championship. I'm sure... Weston's Alabama Crimson Tide are going to stand in the way. He said to me, well, I know the Crimson Tide will be there, George. I don't know if the Wolverines will be there. We'll keep an eye on that. Problems in the NHL, of course. They have uh, withdrawn from the 2022 Olympics. The NHL regular season is a complete mess right now. NBA season is rocking as well. In fact, I think the um, NFL is perhaps the only major league sport that is actually continuing full steam. There's even a lockout in major league baseball. Lots of problems everywhere. We move on. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. In May of 2021, Barbara Hannigan went inside the huddle with Weston and Oliver to give her take on the post-pandemic singer's playbook. She introduced her young artist initiative called Momentum, and she made a great argument as to why streaming is here to stay. Oh, <laughs> 
I was sitting in Hamburg in my pajamas with a glass of wine between Lulu shows, just chewing the fat with a friend of mine. And I was watching the Grammys online, you know, because obviously I couldn't go. I had a show, I think, not the, maybe the next day or the day after. Anyway, or rehearsal, I don't know. And uh, yeah, I was just sitting there. And I said, and I said to my friend, "Oh, just be quiet for a second. They're doing my category. I just have to see." And I had really, I never thought that I would win. I just felt that I should see who did win. And then I was like, "No, I couldn't believe that 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 RCD won. That was just that was a big shocker." And did you have to accept the speech online or something? There was no. Oh well, the funny thing about it was that there is a photo fo floating around of someone who has blonde hair holding a Grammy, who is not me, who has, and it's Getty Images has it, and it's somebody I've never seen in my life. <laughs> and, and it's holding the Grammy, it says Barbara Hannigan with her Grammy. But I wasn't there. <laughs> Just Google Barbara Hannigan Grammy, and you will find a picture of a woman, blonde woman in a long black dress holding a Grammy, and it will say that it's me. <laughs> Well, we are already talking about uh, Crazy Girl Crazy, which has Berio, Gershwin, and oh, I forget the and last Berg. Album. And Berg. Berg. Okay. Just you know, the three, the three yeah. things you always want to put together. And one of those pieces is completely a cappella. Mm, right? The, the yeah, sequenza or something like that. Yeah. Berio Sequenza Three. So he wrote all these sequenzas, sequences for solo instruments. And the third one he wrote for solo voice. He wrote it for his. Um, his ex-wife, who was an amazing American-Armenian singer named Kathy Barbarian. And it's like, it's just a crazy piece with symbols. It's like a graphic score. And so meaning graphic score means that it's not like, there are a few notes in it, but there's also like all these symbols. It's like hieroglyphics almost that you have to figure out and perform like tongue clicks and laughing and mm. coughing and gasping and... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really crazy piece about a woman who's trying to find her place in the world, really. Huh. And I thought it would fit really well on the CD because the CD is about, well, it's kind of about a woman and it's about a kind of madness, but crazy also can be a positive word if something's crazy or if I'm crazy yeah. about you or mm -hmm. something, it has positive connotations. So I was looking at like women and craziness and madness and risks and you know, all that kind of stuff on the CD. I love it. You know, there, I often make this like little comparison. Like I have a friend who sight reads music like ridiculous. Oh, yeah. You might have met her, Catherine Dane. Um, uh, no, I think I've heard her name. She's in yeah. the Netherlands. Anyway, ah. she's the type of singer. Oh, yeah, Catherine you, Dane. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. I know Catherine. Yeah, yeah. yeah she's amazing. Where you can, you can throw spaghetti and meatballs on the wall. And if it sticks to the wall, she can read it, it as music, you know. <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah. I yeah. recommended her once for something... Uh, because uh, Reinbert DeLeo, the conductor I often recorded with and performed with many, many times, and I was, I forget where I was in Munich or I don't know, somewhere, and he called me up and said, I have a, I have a concert next week and this singer has gotten sick. Can you recommend anyone? And I recommended Catherine and she did it and she was fantastic. Yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. So what are, when choosing repertoire, I mean, we already learned now the concept behind Crazy Girl Crazy, but yeah. just in general, what are your kind of standards and goals with repertoire choice, especially when you're both conducting and singing? Well, I think the first thing is to say that pretty well all my choices come from the gut. I mean, instinct, absolutely. It's not intellectual choices at all. 
It's not that I'm fascinated by analyzing such and such a work and figuring out whether the form is retrograde or retrograde inversion, etc. <laughs> totally not interested. I mean, I'm interested in that maybe later. But what's my gut feeling about the piece? And do I want to sink my teeth into it? And do I want to live with it? And do I want to love it? Because it's like a relationship, a piece of music. So um, do I, is it something I want to stand, spend time with? Is it something I want to have a drink with, you know? Um, <laughs> I want to have I a drink to... with that sequenza. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, would it go well with my morning cup of tea, you know? And then the next thing is that I like to put material repertoire together on programs that make emotional dramaturgical sense to me. That means there has to be a kind of through line that connects everything. And it doesn't need to be a linear story. And it can be, actually, it can even be contradictory. But somehow it has to make sense for me that there's some, that everything has to be interconnected. And so I, I mean, I choose very varied repertoire. I love old music. I love new music. I just did the craziest um improvisation with live electronics on a Rameau aria. Mm. I mean, yeah. Which Rameau aria? I'm crazy about Rameau. Um, Triste is après. You know, Castor Perluxia. And um, so, I mean, I really, I love to mix things up, but there has to be, for me, some kind of interconnectedness with everything. And it has to be really something that I feel I can incorporate in my system. You have I just, okay. uh, oh, sorry, uh, I was just wanted to ask, you always seem to have such a, a personal connection to everything that you do, which is so exciting to me as, as an artist, just seeing a, an example of someone doing that uh, and doing it successfully. Um, do you ever like see something uh, like what, what are your limits, basically? What is something that you'll... Uh, you'll seem like maybe maybe it's out of your range or maybe you're like, I'm not sure if I can conduct and sing that at the same time. Like, <laughs> how, how do you negotiate those limits with this really boundless self-expression that you are so known for? Well, um, there are some pieces that lend themselves very well to singing and conducting. And there are other pieces which don't make any sense. Like, I mm -hmm. could do it, but it wouldn't make sense. Mm. Um, uh, maybe some of your listeners know this extraordinary piece by Samuel Barber called Knoxville, summer of oh, 1915. We, we talk about it all the time, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I ended up singing and conducting it. I was only supposed to sing it, actually, with London Symphony um, in March, but I ended up singing it and conducting it on one day's notice, which was really... It, I knew that it would work very well for the piece because the piece is about conjuring collective memory. So to stand and face the, the orchestra and sing it, and we didn't have a public, so it was possible to face the orchestra. I mean, that, that just was like, absolutely, 100%, that works. Mm. Um, but I feel that, I'm, I suppose I'm in quite a luxury position, but I also have to take credit maybe for having created that luxury position um, in saying that I, I really choose carefully uh, what I do what repertoire I do and with whom. And that's like, I'm always, I, I don't, if I get offered something, I say, who are the other singers? Who's the director? Who's the conductor? If it's an opera, you know, or if, 
you know, if I'm invited to a festival, I want to know who the other people are that are that's going to be there. I want to know what kind of programming they have, what kind of audiences they have. Like I'm really selective. And I suppose, you know, maybe that strange path comes from the fact that at the beginning of my career, I was doing like the most obscure contemporary music, like <laughs> really hardcore, strange, strange stuff. Like I've even, you know, <laughs> you know, microtonal, like crazy microtonal improvisational material. And sometimes in the audience, we literally had like seven people, you know, and <laughs> And, and they I were would... all me. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, so I, in a way, like you, you build up your resilience because you, you're staying true to what you feel is important. It's not about selling tickets. It's not about, I mean, I was performing a lot of these things, for example, in Holland, where the government was funding um, concerts. And so they could afford to do a concert where you right. didn't make any ticket sales. Um, that's not the case in the States for sure. Um, but I think so. I, I mean, I, I, in, in a way that was like a hard knock because it's not very fun to walk out on stage and see that nobody's there. On the other hand, I was performing music I really believed in. And what happened over time is that audiences started to get larger and started to trust me. And I always say to young artists, this whole business is based on trust and relationship. Trusting the music, trusting the composer, trusting the presenter, trusting your mm. colleagues, having a relationship with those people. It's not about your agent having a relationship with those people. It's about you, you know. And so over the years, building trust and relationship, also with audiences, finding myself finally performing the most contemporary music to full houses at the Munich State Opera or at Paris Opera, whatever, you know. Um, but it's been a long road. You know, I'm going to be 50 in a week and a day. So <laughs> on May 8th, yeah, a week and two days. Happy um, early birthday. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not sure I'm totally answering your question, but I guess for me it's been... Um, it's been a very interesting path. I didn't have major management, not even remotely major management until I was 40. So really? I was wow. Yeah. So I was doing pretty well everything myself. Um, I learned a lot about, again, the, the trust and relationship. I mean, I was dealing directly with people. You know, the Berlin Philharmonic called me on the phone the first time mm. they wanted me to work with them. Conductors were calling me directly. So that was very cool because you just, then you just talk, you, you know, you're just talking shop directly instead of agent to agent or management to management. And for me, that's really, you know, the personal interaction is again, same with the repertoire. There has to be an interconnectedness, you know? So just go back briefly to the first part of the repertoire. And then I, that's a great place to pivot. I just want to say that I have some friends uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there listening right now uh, who trust your taste in repertoire so much that whenever a new recording comes out, we just talk about like, oh, I've got the new Barbara Hannigan. I'm listening to the new Barbara Hannigan, you know, and, <laughs> not and even talking about composers anymore, just talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that I find really wonderful because I realized at a certain point that um, because I had the trust of the listener, 
I could say, hey, why don't you listen to this? Why don't you try listening to this? Why don't we put these things together and let's all like, I'm really curious what people will think when we put, you know, Berio, Berg and Gershwin together. Or when I put mm-hmm. Rameau and this obscure composer named Petrassi and then Hindemith together, which I did like a month ago in X, like really as one unit, one piece with a flow with no applause in between. And like people go with it. Audiences are curious and if you invite them to be curious and to be participating in the event with you you know witnessing the event with you you're you it again it comes back to that trust and um i also was really lucky that i first i worked with vinter and vinter uh label and and now i've you know the the main part of my albums have been with um alpha Alpha and Alpha. alpha Yeah, me too. They're so amazing <laughs> because I just say, oh, why don't we do a, a you know, a messy, all messy on CD. Great. Why don't we do, uh, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, the Vienna CD. I mean, that's pretty obscure repertoire mm-hmm. of early mm-hmm. Webern and Semlinsky. Yeah. But I mean, they're so into all the things I'm doing. Why don't I put Grise together with Haydn and no, no, like, let's do that triptych. And they're like, thumbs up, you know? <laughs> and so the support is amazing, but I, I don't think that would have happened. I remember like trying in, when I was in my twenties, I remember trying to get stuff that I had done that was, had already been recorded, you know, in live in concert. And it was a really good quality. I couldn't get it put out on a CD to save my life. So, mm. It's, it was, it's been a long game for me, absolutely long game, which is fine. I have no yeah. problem with that, but it's, it's interesting. You know? Well, we touched briefly upon you as a, you know, a young artist transitioning into your professional self. And now we know your age, which I'm shocked that I heard that. But, um, <laughs> we can bleep um, it out if you want. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be, but, <laughs> I'm advertising um, it. So. But my, my first, uh, I first became aware of you through one of our interview guests, uh, Douglas Williams, who was one of your equilibrium young artist fellows. And can you talk yeah. about um, the transition between the young artist training to right. the professional career and yeah. what, how that space is like a lonely space and a, a difficult oh. space? Yeah. Well, you know, Around 2016-17, when I started to get into a position where I realized I had, I had some clout, you know, I thought, okay, well, then I need to start paying it forward, and how am I going to do that? And I thought, okay, I could go and, you know, do, be a regular person at a, at a conservatory and do master classes, which I do to a certain extent. I mean, I go to Juilliard regularly and University of Toronto and some other places, but I thought, that's not really where I'm needed. Where am I needed? And I thought, the loneliest time, the most isolated time of a young artist's career is when they're, or of any artist's career, I think, is when they're starting out. And all of a sudden, you're professional. You know, you've done all hmm. your YAPs, your young artist programs, and all of a sudden, you're out there on the road, and you're supposed to know everything, and you know nothing, and you don't know anyone. You have a hmm. few people, and that that period of, you know, I, I mean, I think it's about seven years when every cent you make is basically going back into coaching, training and prepping because everything you do is new. Um, you're on the road alone. You're taking every possible gig you can. And so I decided to create this initiative, which was 
really for young professionals. It was for young professional artists in the first substantial phase of their career. I didn't want to put an age limit on it. I said, what, what, okay, what does the first substantial phase mean about the first seven years of your career? Because I figured like what I've seen in my life is that if an artist makes it through those first seven years, usually they'll stick around. Uh, but if, if the first seven years are too tough, then we lose a lot of artists into something. I was just telling Weston that I know yeah. people who completed some of the most prestigious, you know, finishing programs yeah. and then they just disappear. And then they just mm -hmm. disappear. Yeah. And so I just thought that's maybe where I can be a helping hand because I know a lot of people. I do all my own programming. I don't like orchestras don't call me up and say, would you like to come and conduct this? No, they just say, would you like to come? And I say, yes. And this is what I would like to do. So I'm in a position where I can program. And because I have the trust of orchestras and companies and managements and so on, I can say, and I'd like to invite this and this and this person who you've never heard of. And they'll say, okay. So that's what I, I decided to do was to start Equilibrium. And I wanted to find who was out there, who was interesting, who was curious, who was kind of, um, yeah, people that, had something different about them not just like a special skill but like that had had a high um, capacity for discipline and hard work that were curious had to have good voices high level of musicianship good technique you know the possibility really to have a serious career but we're still maybe could use a helping hand and so I started EQ and I had I mean, by now, well, I, I started with a production of the Rake's Progress, which I was triple casting, mm. and I was going to do it with four, four different orchestras, maybe, which I did, and we also made a film of it, and a documentary was made, so that was like the first project, and then, and I didn't have any funding, by the way, so oh. then, I, yeah, so that was kind of crazy, so then, and I was like, well, I, of course, I'll sink some of my own savings into it, but... Um, I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it, but then I applied to um, one foundation, the Lucerne Art Mentor Foundation, and they gave us some money just when I really needed it, which was amazing. And then I won a prize in Sweden, the Rolf Schock Prize. And it's a prize from, a, um, um, he was a mathematician, um, kind of physicist expert, and he had had a prize that went out to four people, one was in the arts and the other three were in math and sciences. And I got that prize and it gave me enough money to get the thing going in the first year. Mm. And uh, so that was amazing. So I, I had auditions. I heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications, um, I think from like 42 countries. Um, I watched everything online. I read their letters. I looked at their CVs. I watched their videos. And then I invited musicians to come the singers uh, in person to different cities and to do auditions. And that's how I met Doug Williams, for example. I'd heard about him, um, so I already was pretty interested in him. Um, so am I. Oh, he's, he's such a phenomenal <laughs> artist. I, mean, the I guy, love him. I know, he, he knows that I love him, but like, yeah, I he, really love him. So. Yeah, yeah. Super, super talent. And, and I mean, with the voice that he has, which is such a rich uh, bass baritone instrument um, and combined with his curiosity his high level of musicianship and his ability and interest in the contemporary repertoire as well as the traditional repertoire and poetry just, and dancing and poetry <laughs> and dancing it's just yeah and and just he's a real humanist you know so 
Um, so that's, I mean, it's kind of like people like Doug that I ended up choosing for equilibrium. And we're now, what is it now? 2021. So, and we actually had a season this year. It was crazy. Like in the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like we did, we pulled Chinella became our pandemic piece and we did it in, <laughs> I had a team in Switzerland. I have a team, including Doug coming up in at the Paris Philharmonie. I was with Munich Philharmonic with also with Doug. Um, I, created opportunities for I did an equilibrium engagement like the one the, the the show that's going to be broadcast um tomorrow night April 30th also I, a young artist who auditioned for equilibrium so I've been keeping the dream alive and it's really <laughs> it's it's an initiative where I I bring the the younger artists into the highest level of performance with the orchestras and ensembles with whom I work but I'm also um, we also have guests come in and talk to us. And I love this. Like, I love Q&As. I always learn so much. Um, kind of like podcasts, you know. I just love podcasts. And so we have people like Daniel Harding, Natalie Desay, Laurent Nauri, um, Didier Martin, the head of, of Alpha. Um, we've had social media experts coming in. We've had, you know, mental health experts coming in. Mm. We've had all kinds of people that that come in and speak to uh, the young artists about their paths. Composers, Casper Holton, the former- Any athletes of, of, come in? Well, Jackie, Jackie Reardon, um, was, like she's kind of part of EQ. And Jackie's a former professional tennis player who started this whole mindset, um, friendly eyes kind of initiative, which is all about- yeah, mental focus and discipline, basically. And so there have been athletes who are connected to EQ people because of our connection to Olympic athletes through Jackie. Um, if you ask me the same question in about a month, I'll have a different answer for you. You have Roger uh, Federer coming in? Oh, that would be cool. But no, oh, no, I don't I have a plan for Roger Federer. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. No, I'm a huge <laughs> Fan. That guy is classy, really classy. <laughs> right now, I've got my eyes on Stefano Tsitsipas oh, first okay. because because I love his name, but also, I mean, <laughs> it sounds. I like mean, a, come on, it sounds like the Tsitsi fly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so it, obviously you're providing a lot of resources, even as you said, during the pandemic. Um, and uh, I feel like at this point, it almost feels like a cliche, cliche to talk about what the world of the arts is, is going to look like after the pandemic. But I yeah. thought you might have a, because you're already such an uh, original sort of figure in the operatic pantheon, if you will. Um, and I, I was just wondering, how do you think artists can and should move forward uh, to create a new post-pandemic normal, um, especially when it comes to like, you know, uh, like, like momentum or, uh, mm. uh, or, or just your general thoughts uh, in, in abstract? Okay, well, maybe I'll leave momentum for maybe my second, second part of my answer. And I'll start Great. with two things. <laughs> I think that um, we have to accept that streaming is here to stay mm -hmm. um, and if you like it or you don't like it you've got to accept it that there you know some concert halls had streaming like Berlin Phil and Gothenburg Symphony it was normal for the concerts to be streamed other places like the radio orchestras you know they're always going out on the radio and occasionally had video coverage but I think we have to accept now that it's here and right. it's 
difficult for any artists. I mean, I've talked to many artists that are, you know, not young artists anymore about how tough they find the, the streamings because the audience isn't there and that they really get their energy from the audience. I also, mm. what I find the most difficult is singing when there is an audience and it's also being streamed. So say you've mm. got, you've got a, you know, a half a size audience or sometimes some places I played 1800 seat hall in November for 50 people. And we did the show six times and it was for radio. And that was super tough because I wanted to sing for the radio mic, but there's 50 people spread out over this huge hall. And if they don't hear me, I also feel, and you sing very differently. You perform very differently, like film acting versus theater acting. So, um, and it's the same with streaming. Like I actually started to really enjoy the streamings as long as there was no audience there. If I could do a streaming like a recording session with beautiful light. And I just thought this is a really beautiful recording session and we're all dressed up and we look fabulous and I'm singing for the mic, you know, Um, then it was okay. But I think this is something that artists are really going to have to navigate because it's not only the fact that it's being streamed, it's the fact that it's staying out there. Yes. It's not just your, your one night concert where you didn't feel at your best you can't forget about it because everybody keeps watching it for the next, you know, 30 days, six months, five years. And it's very hard to negotiate rights to say it can't stay up or I get approval. I mean, approval, <laughs> artist approval. I mean, even me at the age I'm at, artist approval is is really hard to, to sort out. And I can't imagine what it's like for young artists that don't have, you know, the, the, the power that the older artists have. Um, I just think of like the the Mets, you know, every night since the beginning of the pandemic, just putting out a, another stream in their library. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine like what the legal loopholes must be that they're exploiting to do that. But uh, it, it is very much a concern. And especially when you, uh, for someone like you, who is creating something so personal, I wonder, have you ever run into anything like that where you've not wanted them to put something out? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, I've been pretty supportive of, of everything going out. Um, I just also maybe because I'm from Waverly, Nova Scotia, and mm-hmm. most much of my family and friends, they still live in Nova Scotia. They, they're not going to get to Paris Opera. They're not going to get to Munich. So I like exactly. that my family can, you know, if the internet's working that day, that they can watch stuff I'm doing. So as an um, Alabama native, I really feel that. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's, I think it's really amazing. Um, and I'm such a fan of radio and I've been, I mean, pretty well, well, I would say a lot of what I did since I was 19 years old was on radio because I was doing world premieres. So I'm mm-hmm. used to, to being like out there. And um, I feel that the idea of traveling is going to change. And this hopping overseas back and forth. And, and, you know, I think that's probably going to change in the next while. I have friends in the airline industry. I also have friends in the climate change movement. And mm-hmm. I know that both are suffering for very, for very different reasons. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that we're going to see touring change considerably and I personally am much less eager I mean I never liked being on airplanes very much anyway um, because I 
I mean, sometimes I could maybe watch a movie that was nice or catch up on on uh, some reading, but otherwise, I just find I find it very very stressful going through customs and going going overseas back and forth and the jet lag and so on. So, but I think it's really going to change. Uh, I think financially, there's going to be less money, and people are going to be more interested in having artists come for two or three weeks than coming for one week at a time. And I'm noticing that already in my calendar in future seasons, that people want you to come for a residency. And I do too, you know, as long as I can find someone to look after my cats, like I, I really, I'm happy to Volunteering as tribute. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, tribute, well, we'll yeah. take care of your cats for you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> July of 2021 was when the Euro 2020 European Football Championships were played, of course, postponed a year because of COVID-19. We took the final four teams and put them in a bracket, replicating Euro 2020, and had our special guest, Maestro Anthony Bereze, to pick a winner based on the opera prowess of the remaining four countries. The matchups were England represented by Weston against Denmark, represented by myself. And the winner of that played the winner of Italy, represented by Matt, and Spain, represented by Oliver. Of course, we know in reality, England would lose on penalties to Italy. The three Lions did so well. And this England fan, so proud of how far they went. The results of the opera, Euro 2020 championships, that's right now. When I initially picked England, I thought George was going to be judging this instead of Anthony. So I feel like I <laughs> I might be at a more of a disadvantage than, uh, than I initially thought, but that's okay. So England is maybe not the first country that springs to mind when you're thinking about opera, right? I feel like people tend to gravitate towards your, your Germany's, your France's, your England's. Uh, Definitely start lizard. with an apology. That's, yeah, well, that's that's, that's the way to go. But that's <laughs> the thing, though, is that uh, I there's no need for England to apologize because once you start looking at these stats, you're like, oh wait, this is kind of a little superpower in and of itself. Um, I was looking at a bunch of stats. These are uh, all my stats are from OperaBase.com. Um, this is, uh, I, I decided to look at the 2018, 2019 season because, um, obviously I don't want to count anything from the pandemic because all bets are off there. Um, and Great Britain had the sixth most operas performed in the world, which is pretty so it's impressive. it's not even top five. <laughs> well, but it, it beats out France and Spain completely. Um, while, and while it's not, you know, number one. It, it definitely is punching above its weight class, uh, especially for a country that had a bit of a operatic dry spell between Handel and Benjamin Britten. But, um, <laughs> you know, a short stretch of music. <laughs> a history. little short stretch. <laughs> Kill Britain Sullivan, if you please. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to remember, too, that in the 2018-2019 season, London had the most operas performed um, than any other individual city in the world, London. Um, and it was a second in the number of productions compared to uh, Moscow, I believe, um, which is pretty impressive. Um, there are over 430 opera companies in the U.S. In the, in the U.K., according to Opera Base, which is very impressive. Um, there are, of, and then if you look at another list of top composers, uh, in terms of the 2018-2019 season, Handel saw 511 performances, which is ninth place out of ten. But you also have to remember that Handel is the only Baroque composer on that list. It's all 19th century 
basic people, basic composers, uh, you know, and, and Mozart, like, what is that? You know, but Handel is like holding on, not just like England, but like the Baroque period entirely, which I think is pretty cool. Um, England is also one of the home to a lot of, I think, very uh, offbeat composers. Uh, like um, if you look at some of their, their, their offerings, you have like Ethel Smith, probably the most famous female composer of the past, you know, three, 400 years, honestly. Um, Benjamin Britten, of course, single-handedly revitalized British opera. And I think arguably was, you know, uh, instrumental in modern styles of opera. Um, I would also mention that, you know, if you go way, way back, you've got like Purcell, you know, England getting at the ground floor, really, really solid stuff. And while maybe they don't have necessarily like the breadth of like Italy in terms of like all of the great like war horse composers, uh -oh. they, are, they are a powerhouse in terms of contemporary composers. I would argue that there are more relevant 20th century and 21st century English composers than there are from any other country on this list. I mean, uh, you look at uh, Peter Maxwell Davies, Thomas Addis, George Benjamin are some favorites of mine. I mean, these are all... Yeah big heavy hitters in the contemporary opera world and a couple of those are still alive which is a nice bonus in terms of singers you've got um you know quintessentially british voices like peter pears uh, ian bostridge uh janet baker kathleen ferrier john tomlinson alice coote sarah connelly they all have very British voices and a very specific sense of drama that you don't necessarily see with a lot of, um, you know, uh, singers from other countries, in my opinion. And I would also be remiss, as far as singing goes, to mention uh, countertenor Alfred Deller, who uh, paved the way for the modern countertenor. And if, I think that because of Alfred, through Alfred Deller, we have one of the most important developments in vocal technique um, coming from England that is now a quintessential part of historic period practice. Uh, they basically invented a new voice type, which is not something that I think you can really say out of any of the other uh, countries here. And for that reason, even though it might be a little bit of an underdog at first glance, I think England has a pretty good shot of winning it all this year in soccer. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you put put your best foot forward there, Weston. Good effort. I like it. All right, we're gonna let's get real now. Okay, let's talk about Denmark. Side note: I'm happy to cheer on Denmark as an England fan just for today. Once we meet on the pitch uh, for the Euros, all bets are off. All right, Carlsberg beer, one of those delicious Danish beers. Its old advertising slogan was "Carlsberg, probably the best lager in the world." You know, when it comes to opera, I think the same thing applies. You know, Denmark, probably the most underrated opera country in the world. Copenhagen, it's just plain cool. It's the place to be. Let's talk opera houses. I'm going to leave everything on the floor. I'm not saving anything for the next game. <laughs> what a rookie mistake you made, Weston. Because he won't make it past the first round. All right. We got two big, two big opera houses, the Royal Danish opera led by John Full James and the Danish National Opera. Those are both in Copenhagen. And actually, the Copenhagen Opera House looks remarkably like Jabba's sail barge, which is really <laughs> beautifully done. They dropped Did you mean that as a point four or again? <laughs> That's my question. $370 million to build that in 2000. All right, here's the stat that matters is, that, is this. 
There are 36 opera companies in Denmark. That is for a country of 6 million people per capita. That blows all these competitors out of the water. That shows the importance of this art form to this nation. Let's look at the composers. Edvard Grieg, Carl Nissen, Paul Ruders, who just wrote Handmaid's Tale, even Louis Edvard Grieg? Even Louis Andreessen yeah, is still yeah, alive. What's, and what's a good no. Grieg opera? Uh, I'm not going to get into specifics here. I don't have the time for that. All right. Uh, and look, this just in. Kaya Sariaho's Innocence coming up uh, next season at the Met, mind you, was commissioned by the Danish National Opera. We've got writers, stories from the likes of Hans Christian Andersen. We've got voices like baritone Bo Skovus and tenor Loritz Melchior and directors like Casper Holten who cut his teeth in Denmark and then would go and run the Royal Opera House. So are these household names? No, they're not. But in the Euro 2020 competition, Ukraine, that wasn't a household name. Um, uh, Switzerland, that wasn't a household <laughs> okay. name either. But boy, this roster of singers, writers, directors, composers, houses is so unique and it deserves to go to the final. Reza, make your call. This is a this is tougher than I thought it would be. Um, you you got to take off points for Edvard Grieg because he was Norwegian. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> well, okay. I also don't know of any okay. operas that he wrote. That's uh, fine. That That's is, fine. That too. But Double hey, points. look, IKEA. Okay, IKEA. <laughs> That's Swedish. 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 When you said sorry, I was like, she's not. But you but you made the point that I mean. She's Finnish, isn't she? Sorry, he's Finnish. Yeah, but, but he yeah. said it was commissioned by the. By yes, the he's playing this pan Scandinavian league over here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, man, this is tough. This is really tough. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to go with England simply because it's just got a, like a, a longer history. It's. I don't know. I'm sorry, George, but like, you made some compelling arguments, but then you also made some some serious mistakes. It was, it was a really tough choice, though. It's okay. It's still a moral victory for you, George. <laughs> Moving over to the other half of the bracket, then. This is Matt's Italy, who's going to go first against Oliver's Spain. i got to go first. I don't even know what kind of argument I'm going to counter, but luckily... <laughs> <laughs> we got a powerhouse on our hands because literally how much time do you have to talk about the people who invented opera as it is today? First recorded operas were performed in these ducal palaces in Italy. And then, and that has grown into a cottage industry with these major houses like La Scala, arguably the Mount Everest of performing an opera and uh, definitely the Mount Everest of getting applauded for performing an opera. You've got Teatro La Fenice, which is which has both cultural significance as an opera house named the Phoenix that has burned down not once but twice and was featured in major opera movies like A Night at the Opera and the Lucchino Visconti, who also was an opera director his film Senso, Teatro San Carlo, the oldest continually active opera venue in the world in Naples. And basically the template for all perform for, for most of these royal opera houses that these jokers are talking about. That's not even counting the Arena di Verona. I could go on for literally two hours just listing opera houses in Italy, not even talking about operas that were set there or composers. Let's talk composers. Weston had you know, we we've already we've already seen the hand there in 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 England. In Italy, you got you get in from the ground floor. You've got Monteverdi, Cavalli going all the way through the Belcanto era to Verdi and Puccini, the bread and butter of your operatic repertoire today. 
of the top 10 most compo most performed composers from those 2018-19 stats. You had Verdi in first, Puccini in third, Rossini in fourth, and Donizetti in sixth. Just those four composers. Uh, second was... I believe it was Mozart. Go to Mozart. Yeah, just those four composers is a total of over 3,000 performances. I, I you know, I... <laughs> Singers, again, how much time do you have? <laughs> You've got the historical singers like Francesco Cuzzoni, Farinelli, Luisa Tetrazzini, like all people who are on the vanguard of technical advancement in opera and whose names we still talk about in terms of teaching opera history because they were just that important to the art form. And then legendary singers within memory. I mean, you've got Pavarotti, you've got two Renatas, both Scotto and Tabaldi, two Titos, both <laughs> two old and Gobi. And that doesn't even count Toti Del Monte. You know, I could go on and I probably will because this is going to be a blowout. I All right. Matt Cummings going to save something for the uh, potentially inevitable second round here, but Oliver Spain. Well, Italy may have all of that, may bring that much muscle to the game, but where's the romance? I mean, oh. if you took away mm. Spain... You would not have Carmen. You would not have Don Giovanni. You wouldn't have Barbara Seville or Merge Figaro or Trovatore or Don Carlos or Forza del Destino. Yeah, or who everybody. wrote all those operas? <laughs> <laughs> but he needed a place. Um, what about Don Quixote? What about Elixir of Love? Did you know that was set in Spain? And uh, yeah. So yeah, depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so many composers, namely Italian ones wanted to be Spanish. They wanted to set their operas mm. in a place that the audience immediately identified and understood what it meant to be Spanish because that's how important Spain is to Europe. And we're talking about singers. I mean, if you did not have Manuel Garcia, you wouldn't have Maria Malabran. So none of your Rossini operas would have a star or Pauline Viardot for all of those great French operas. And she composed herself, Pauline Viardot, even though she wasn't born in Spain. <laughs> she comes from Spain. <laughs> and then there's only one, you know, non-desirable singer, you know, um, Placid Sunday. But we have some really nice ones, <laughs> like Montserrat Caballé. Hall of Famer, got to give her credit. Alfredo Kraus, Teresa Berganza, Pilar Lorengar, Jose Carreras. Um, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, Spain just brings so much to the table. Um, yeah, we have some opera houses too. Three that are, you know, considered to be international level uh, European houses, the Bilbao, the Madrid Real, and the Gran Liceo in Barcelona. And we have uh, a stage director that everybody wants a piece of, Calixto Bieto. Bieto. Uh, you know, Italy may have the history, but uh, yeah, Spain has shown throughout time that it's always a place that composers want to go, that singers come from, and uh, where weird-ass directors <laughs> get their start. <laughs> crazy name, crazy guy, Calixto Bieto. So Oliver makes the case for Spain, throwing it back to our guest. Place. Crazy, it's the place. To, to judge. Italy and Spain, you're looking at the entire body of work here, opera set in that country, the opera houses, the composers, the number of performances, the prominence of the singers, which country has- Spanish composers, we don't really got them. <laughs> we have that Zarzuela you, stuff. But and there's but, settings. Um, I'm reminded of the first time that, that Michael Jordan was allowed to play basketball in the Olympics and- uh, <laughs> 
was basically cleaning his fingernails while playing the the Russian team, and it was a bit of a turkey shit. So I I I I mean I really I can't in any despite my my preconceived notions. I just think this is such an unfair. If this like I don't even know why you. I know you put Italy in this, but it's like having a, a pyramid contest with Egypt versus like everybody else. So it's with, with um, I don't know, with, with no regrets, I, this one goes to Italy. Ah, puta madre. I'm shocked. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. shocked. Into the final. Weston's England, you're going to go first, Weston, against Matt's Italy, the final. Here we go. Make your case. Well, I think the the first thing I want to say is that I know Matt's going to come up right after me and just hit me with the rest of those statistics, which is going to, to hurt a little bit. But the reason I named pretty much all my statistics in the first round is because I think the real core of what makes England an operatic superpower is a little bit more ineffable than that. Um, it, first of all, one thing we haven't mentioned, especially when you're talking about, say, like Verity and stuff, Verdi was heavily, heavily inspired by Shakespeare. And I mean, you know, you're not going to have a lot 60% of Verdi without Shakespeare, at least not as effectively, you know? Yeah, uh, and, and it would be, 60%. it would be really tough if you had like, like one of your prime operatic composers of a country being heavily influenced by your opponent. Like <laughs> true. George Friedrich Handel, for instance, you would <laughs> never want that 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 to be brought. Well, you'd also have to all. remember that you know Handel, you know, while he did do a, do time in Italy, there's also the German component as well. Oh, so saying, he's gonna, German, famous like... primarily for his German music. Sure. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I do think we have to point out that you know uh, Shakespeare is has his fingerprints all over the European continent. Um, Every single time someone is going to create talk about something that is dramatic at its core, they're going to refer to it as their country's version of Shakespeare. You know, Italy is a vocal powerhouse. You've got all the bel canto that you could ever want. You've got your Puccini, you've got your Sopranos. But I think we can, and this might be a controversial statement for Anthony specifically, but I think once you get to, you know, the mid 20th century, things start to diverge a little bit in opera. You have the, the vocal pyrotechnics, the old fashioned Italian style, and then you have the more dramatic, more grounded, perhaps more relevant, I would argue, as the England supporter style of opera that really finds its home in England and places like Germany. Um, I would say that, you know, you might go to an Italian opera and hear some very impressive runs and trills, but once you hit the 1950s, there's not that many relevant Italian composers out there, I would say. I mean, I, I think that, you know, you look at like someone like Thomas Addis is much more of a force than any living Italian composer because of the way he writes, the way he speaks to the, uh, you know, contemporary people. I think that modern Italian composers are not heard that much outside of Italy, whereas England is in its flowering. Italy had its flowering maybe 400 years ago, and who knows, they might have won every single competition up to this point. But I think that England, if you take into account the drama, the relevance, and the uh, the more adventurous nature of what it is currently producing, has a better shot of defeating them here in 2021 slash 2020 because of the pandemic. Weston Williams <laughs> using some substitutions and some 
20th century trickery to try and one up Matt's Italy. Matt's, what's the uh, second half going to look like for you? Yeah, you may uh, you may have tried to to kneecap Verdi, but interestingly, Shakespeare himself hit a lot of the roots of stories like Romeo and Juliet come back to Italy themselves. Every set, I mean, every version of Romeo and Juliet set in where? Fair Verona, where we play our scene. So did he really write it so much as steal from the Italians? Yeah, (laughs) we, you know, the operas that are set in Italy, I didn't even mention in the first round, but what's really interesting about them is that uh, I think of operas like Tosca, which are not only set in Rome, but are like a tourist guidebook to important monuments in Italian history. Like these are not just, they're not just set dressings, but they're fundamentally part of the story. They're like, they're the fertile soil. The history itself is part of the fertile soil from which these operas grew forth. And furthermore, to talk about 20th century composers in England that, you know, that ignores composers like Luigi Nono, Luciano Berio, uh, composers who maybe don't get heard or performed, performed as much as the 20th century uh, English or, or the older Italian composers. But that does not mean that they were not, you know, out there still doing the work, still running the runs, still doing their drills. Uh, the Italian school of singing was so influential that England stole it and imported all of the singers from Italy because that's what people wanted to hear. <laughs> Everyone, every other national style of opera was really kind of created in opposition to Italian opera itself because that was how they had to define themselves as what they weren't as opposed to what they were because this is just a juggernaut that will not be stopped. When people stop going to La Scala, then maybe London can be top dog. But like, I just don't see that happening today. <laughs> Matt Cummings making the case very strongly, finishing off the final. We go back to our judge and our guest on the show, Anthony Bereza. I was really impressed with the Shakespeare argument um, until I remembered this was a discussion about opera. So, <laughs> that I, is fair, I, I suppose. Again, and and oh, you went down the wrong alley with the contemporary Italian opera is my 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 greatest love. <laughs> so uh wait yeah. don't forget about the bribe i gave you uh yeah again i just buy, find this this whole setup so unfair um to everybody but uh italy so this is this <laughs> an easy uh, shooting fish in the wow italy. italy storms its way into the final and wins the Euro 2020 of opera the only what? thing that, they, that you could have brought up i think that would have really been a gut punch to Italy was mm. the fact that they're notorious for not paying their singers. Uh, even today, I mean, even before, right before the pandemic, and even some of the best opera houses are just uh, swimming in red. Um, and and that it is much more preferable for a lot of these people to sing, I think, in really any one of the other countries. I think the real downfall was the failure to pay the referee, but you know. Each that, their own. That could have, yeah, that could be it too. There we go. Well, we'll see how it plays out in but, reality. Just let it be noted that our judge's last name is Barese, yeah. and that is not a Polish <laughs> the, last there name. Is, there is a little bit, a little bit of bias. That would they, never it, fly. People. Yeah, that, they don't do that in soccer, right? Never... <laughs> the international <laughs> clean sporting. as can be. Yeah. Ah, England. So close, but Italy just too strong. Thanks again to our special guest, Maestro Anthony Bereze, for picking a winner. To go backwards into 
2021 in January, almost a year ago, we went inside the huddle with America's favorite baritone, Will Liverman, this Ryan Opera Center alum, and also the Mets' first black Papageno would then be profiled in the February 2021 issue of Opera News, which was probably the first time one of our interview guests got that OBS bump before the episode even aired. Of course, Will Liverman had a great 2021. This is what he had to say with us inside the huddle. You know, when I first started singing, you know, it was about just getting my name out there and just surviving and doing the auditions and competitions and like, um, but there came a time where it was just like, okay, you know, I've started to get my career going and it's, but it's more than that. Like, and of course, I mean, being an opera singer is something that's, you know, so meaningful for me to be able to, you know, use my gift and share my gift on the stage and, and work with people and to create something special. And, you know, opera is, you know, amazing. It's, it's, it's what I love. But beyond that, it's, you know, I started thinking like, what do I want to, you know, leave behind? You know, do I want to just be keep, you know, singing these roles and go from place to place, which is, you know, amazing. I get to see a lot of new cities, but like, I want to use my platform for something else too. Um, and, you know, I got into opera because I saw some, folks that were on stage that looked like me, like like Lawrence Brownlee and Denise Graves and like, you know, folks like this that have paved the way uh, so I can be on these stages, you know, they they really inspire me. So I wanted to also use my platform, um, you know, to encourage other young artists of color and be an advocate for diversity, inclusion in the arts and, you know, pull you know, bring to light, you know, other black composers, um, as much as I can and 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 and, um, and sing and, and perform their works. And so that's just sort of like how over the years, how that developed and how the album came about. Um, I wanted to push this or make an album featuring all black composers, because I think a lot of times, you know, when we listen to black composers or their music, it's always, you know, and I love spirituals. Spirituals are like, my favorite because I grew up with a lot of gospel and to me spirituals sort of like is that perfect link between you know classical singing and gospel kind of all merge into one mm -hmm. but I think a lot of you know times we put you know composers on platforms and, and recognizing their works uh, with spirituals but you know there are a lot of great composers that wrote a lot of great art songs um, so I wanted to make a, an album specifically highlighting them highlighting their contributions and art song and it was a labor of love. It was something that I just reached out to Jim Ginsburg about like my program idea and pitched it to him. Um, and it was actually a connection through uh, an uh, album that I did with, or I just was like a, uh, an appearance with uh, Nicole Cabell and Allison Cambridge. They had a, a yeah, sisters, sisters and song. song. <laughs> yeah. And so I was, I, I came on to do the cozy trio and that's how I got linked up with CD records. Honorary and sister. Yeah, exactly. Honorary sister. Um, and so that was, you know, my introduction to them. And so that's, uh, I pitched this project idea to, to Jim a few years ago. And, and Jim Ginsburg, uh, who is yeah. the CEO of Say D record label here in Chicago. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he went for it. And then, you know, from there, we, uh, you know, just uh, uh, did the program and we were able to record actually during COVID times safely in Indiana. And then here we are. With your yeah. collaborator, Sean. With uh, yeah. So so Paul Sanchez uh Sanchez. is is uh is the pianist, mm -hmm. and the the album actually features 
a, a piece called Two Black Churches that I commissioned uh, for Sean O'Pebolo. Um, and going back, you know, he's the guy who I got, you know, myself, Sean and Paul, we worked together on Sean's first album of spiritual. So that's how I, you know, got to be connected with them. And I really loved his writing. I really loved how he took those spirituals and made them like really his own and the way he just brought them to life in a different way um, with his writing specifically in the piano parts. Um, so I really wanted to feature him in something that was meaningful to, to me and to, you know, just telling a black story about, you know, these girls, um, the Birmingham bombing, which is something that's so tragic, but then doing a parallel to the, the Charleston shooting to, you know, sort of show how, you know, black people in America are still, after all this time having to, to deal with, you know, the racism and, um, you know, being, um, you know, for me growing up in the South, especially, dealing with that myself and, and being stereotyped, being, uh, having people look at me different. Um, uh, and it's all, all those things, you know, was the inspiration behind two black churches. And that was a focal point. We just sort of built a program around uh, that. But so that's, are you also playing on one of these tracks at the last Yeah. One? Yeah. Um, that was another source of inspiration. I was watching this documentary uh, about the Birmingham bombing and they played this song at the end called Birmingham Sunday. And I was like, oh, I got to like, there's something about the song just really struck me. And I, I uh, was playing around with it and did sort of my own arrangement. And that I, so for the last, I think, song in the, in the album, um, I'm playing <clears throat> and singing for myself, the song Birmingham Sunday, which kind of just wraps up the whole album and, you know, kind of touches on the, the bombing again, but also uh, more generally, you know, the, the, the song goes back to, and the choir kept singing of freedom and, <clears throat> To me, that's sort of a central central uh, uh, point of the the album. So, I, um, I was happy to be able to to have that be included as well. It's a special piece. Well, I'm a huge admirer of your sitting at the piano and singing, and it's actually very kind of aggravating to me that somebody is as talented as you. Um, but like you, you have some of these videos uh, that are available uh, on your social media, uh, some of which are very like authentic and mm -hmm. sincere and for lack of better word, soulful. I don't know if you prefer a different word, but I'm just going to no, say, so yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about um, your training as a musician? I don't want to talk too much about like your necessarily no, education, no, yeah. but, uh -huh. but like how you come mm -hmm. to sit at the piano and be able to sing like that and to be able to be mm -hmm. in front of a microphone in front of a camera, which mm -hmm. is something that we're all getting used to yeah, now, right, during right. COVID. But it seems like you were mm -hmm. comfortable with that like mm -hmm. maybe six years ago, seven years ago, you're already doing stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, for, for me, like with my background, I grew up with a big gospel background in, in the Pentecostal church basically means no sheet music, all mm -hmm. ear, all off the cuff, all like we don't know what I mean, of course, you know, choir, we have choir practice, and all that. But, like there are songs that we sing, but there's a lot of improv in church and lots of people will just get up and sing a song and you just go with it. So I grew up in that sort of environment of just, you know, going with the flow. And I learned how to play <clears throat> gospel music at a young age and listening to it early on. So that sort of gave me the improv ability and, you know, messing around on the, the piano in that way. And I also did take, you know, music or classical piano as well. So kind of, you know, being able to read a little bit and also improv gave me that, uh, that skill set for that and um and yeah i always 
you know, when I started out performing, I didn't have a lot of work actually. So I just spent my time, you know, it's like, well, one of the things, you know, I think about the greats and like how they leave behind their legacy and what do they have? <laughs> they have recordings and people go to those, you know, YouTube sites and listen to folks. So it's just like, okay, well, I should just do, you know, find some rep that I love and, and record it, you know, and just get it out there that kind of way. And, and, and sort of that way you sort of control when people type in your name and see what comes up, like the, the information and uh, the things that people see. So I spent a lot of time, you know, a few years ago, investing money in, in like project recordings. And um, I did this competition where I was, I did like a Deutsche gramophone test recording. So I was, have some of that all online. And that's all, that's all kind of how that got started. And I always make it um, a goal of mine every year to like keep just periodically putting out, you know, new, new videos, new art song things, and just like, continuing to get it out there because it's so important these days especially with COVID times yeah i mean um, you're uniquely yeah. prepared to yeah. <laughs> be a working musician uh in this yeah, time yeah. if you had already experience with recording equipment and having yeah, the camera yeah. trained on you and it's a it's an entirely mm -hmm. different topic and i, I mean i would love yeah, to talk it's... about that with you because mm -hmm. you are so good at social media mm -hmm. maybe we'll get back to it but mm -hmm. um no i think that what you did before was always really engaging. I think there's a video of you uh, crack open your score before the first day of rehearsal. <laughs> oh God. Maybe we'll link to it or maybe we'll cut it. Actually, there's no rights on that. That's like, we can get your permission right here. Do we have permission to share that? I mean, it's like a parody of another actual rap song, but oh, okay. there's, there's maybe no... we'll get flagged. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but that, that that is that video particularly cracks me up because <laughs> it's the way we you hear people talking to each other sometimes like in the lounges of conservatories you know but it's exactly. not something that you usually yeah. hear available to a wider audience i don't know what is what has been some of the reaction you've been gotten from you know your the organizations you work for and your colleagues about some of that stuff oh i think for a lot of people it's unexpected mm -hmm. I started, you know, these funny, like silly videos just started out, I don't know, you're just bored and you just take a song and, and make it relatable and talk about things that people can relate to. And that's just sort of how it came up and, you know, how we're always talking like, gosh, this person was so prepared. They didn't know their music. Like <laughs> how long have they had this, you know, like, and so I just kind of took all that information and just made this sort of song that people can, everyone always has that person in the cast. And I think, you know, people are always, you know, organizations are, you know, surprised, hopefully <laughs> uh, in a positive way, you know, when I, when they see this type of material and it's just, it also shows like the, the fun, the fun side too, you know, and then not to take things, um, you know, kind of just be light, you know, too. I kind of, kind of make that a, an important part of, of who I am along with like all of the very, you know, serious subject matter that's on my page but also like you know i love the office i love to laugh i love mm -hmm. you know to you know to just be genuine and joyful so that's those that's always the inspiration behind those types of things yeah. and i know one day i might be my own i'm always worried that i'm going to be the victim of my own song one day <laughs> when i have a gig and i just have like no time to prepare and i'm going to show up and then that song is just going to come back and bite me <laughs> we know a very famous artists who show up to <laughs> rehearsal and they have to have the music staff teach them their role you know yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> hello so when i begin to think about all of these pieces of your 
brand, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. um, your kind of identity, politics, mm -hmm. and your social media presence, and even the very specific work that you do as a composer and as a musician, it all begins to feel like you are like, you want to be like this advocate teacher in the opera mm. community. Mm -hmm. um, can you think back about your own training? Did you have any experience? And then we talked briefly about the governor's school mm -hmm. where you like, where you felt that, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, that passion for being, for teaching, even if you're not like specifically yeah. going to be a teacher per se, but yeah. The idea of like that kind of sharing and uh, feeling mm -hmm. the passion about uh, advocating mm -hmm. for what we do as musicians. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it probably hit me. It's probably my DNA a little bit because my dad was a teacher. He was a elementary school teacher. And a lot of that, I think, rubbed off on me. I don't think I knew I had it really at the beginning uh, when I was focusing mainly on performing. Um, but especially now during this pandemic, um, you know, we're all sitting around. I've had a, you know, a lot of time to really uh, work with <clears throat> the Governor's School for the Arts is where I you know, went to high school and, and worked and did some master classes. With a lot Ryan of Speedo Green and Frederick Ballantyne. <laughs> yeah, we all were there at the same time. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, this little school in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, and it really just sort of dawned on me that, you know, even before then, you know, as I was going throughout my career, realizing the importance of being an advocate and using your platform to help, you know, continuing all together to, to forge a path forward um, in terms of, you know, inclusion and diversity, not just on the stage, but, you know, in administration as well. And really making the, you know, we're making these statements, but what are we doing actually to, to make that change that we, that we uh, want to see in this field? Um, because there's lots of potential. There's so many great minds and great talent out there. We have what we have everything is just like what are we doing to to make this go forward and that's like a big part of my mission is encouraging and, and helping people as i you know as best as i can um who are behind me and you know telling them about my story and um you know encouraging them to to uh you know speak up and use their voice and be comfortable in their skin um because it's you know it's what i was trained, you know, by my, my, my uh, high school teacher, Robert Brown, instilled that in me. Um, and he um, was, you know, he was like a musical father to all of us. He, he passed away, sadly, in 2008, I think. Um, but, you know, he, you know, Ryan Speedo Green, Freddie will tell you, I mean, it's in his book, actually, in Ryan's book that, you know, Mr. Robert Brown was, you know, a, a major influence. Because um, he, you know, he's a six foot four, Black man, he, 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 we, we loved about him. I mean, he was like super funny, but also would come down with like the hammer of justice if you didn't have that music learned. Like, yeah. that's where we learned that, like that discipline. Yeah. And to Crack see open a, your score before the first day of rehearsal. <laughs> look, you can mess around and not have that music learned if you want. You're going to be put on full blast. Like, Brown didn't care who it was. Um, Were you at that performance of Carmen that uh, Ryan talked about where he met Denise Graves backstage? I think that may have been a year before me, or okay. it could have been maybe my freshman year, but like I, you know, we would always take trips to governor's school or to the mm -hmm. Met. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's for me as well. That's where, uh, that's where I really had a thought like, man, this is a really cool art form. I mean, I was just amazed at how, I mean, we were sitting in the nosebleeds and we could hear those singers without microphones just clear as day up there. I'm like, how are they doing this? How are they making this sound? I mean, it's just something 
so unnatural and so different and so otherworldly that it was like, it's cool. But at that time, <laughs> whatever this was in the in the early aughts or in the uh, Gosh, to, in the late nineties, yeah. maybe yeah. Yeah. Did you also, as a high school student, um, understand that you were a minority in the audience, not just on stage? You know, it's weird. I had, I had kind of a reverse thing happen because governor school was super diverse mm -hmm. and there were a lot of black singers, opera singers in that program because we're all from the area and governor school is a huge advocate for, I mean, it was just one of the mo most diverse schools um, in dance. I mean, we have the, you know, um, Adrian Warren, who's Tina and Tina Turner went to governor school um, and lots of folks that, that, um, so I was just like growing up, I, I was always surrounded by um people of color super, yeah people yeah. of color that Same were super experience. talented until i went to college <laughs> until i went to college exactly so like it started off like whoa this is what it's like and then i was like oh wait <laughs> it's not really like so it was, i had like the reverse experience of really getting that at an early age and thinking this is the norm but then going out there the further you go up you realize like oh it's kind of not as diverse it's getting as I wider and wider the yeah. higher it goes. <laughs> yeah yeah start off like all your family and friends and parents mm -hmm. are all at the concerts yeah. and it's like super fun and like yeah. you know people are really into it and then like over time it was like okay <laughs> yeah, it's just it uh it was interesting to to think about that good call bad call on opera box score all right that is it for this week's show, we got a good call and a bad call. My TV list is very, very long right now. And though it has nothing to do with opera, I did watch the first episode of Station Eleven on HBO Max. Nothing to do with opera, but so beautifully filmed. I have not read the book. I don't really read books, but wow, I cannot wait to see how that TV show plays out. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Please help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line and get that OBS beer coaster. Get that OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. As the year draws to a close, you can even make a donation to Opera Box Score. That's operaboxscore.com slash donate. Even 20 bucks help us continue to produce our show. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just slam the favorite button on Apple Podcasts. And in the new year, the OBS is coming to you on more platforms. We're going to share details on that. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you ring in the new year, whatever time zone you are in. I still don't quite understand the international dateline. We're back with an all-new show next week when we look at the most memorable stories from opera land in 2021. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more shh, not so loud hangovers. Join us.